Good morning. That's better. I leave it on mute now because there was a pastor one time who told me that he had it muted in the sound booth, and then I, we were on deputation. I took Aaron to the restroom, and he unmuted it while I was in the restroom with Aaron, and his name was John Haley. <laughs> so I, I try and mute it myself now, and I always forget to take it off. But my name is Sean Williford. We are privileged to be your missionaries with Prime Ministries, and John, Pastor John, is currently on the mission field in Kenya with 11 others. Uh, serving with David and Kim Hayes and Lisa Moore in Real for Christ. I got a text from him this morning that said they had two who accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior yesterday morning. Amen. And then three more in some afternoon stuff they did at one of the high schools. So praise the Lord for saved souls in Kenya and the fruit that they're already seeing in their trip. This morning I'm privileged to be able to speak with you and bring a message to you from Malachi and continuing the series that John started last week. John talked about guarding our heart against comparison last week. He, he gave this scripture, Isaiah 29, 13. says, The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. This is way before Malachi, but I think this is where the priests are when we get to Malachi. And specifically the part where it says, Yet their hearts are are far from me. Everything in Malachi, all of the issues that God is going to address through the prophet Malachi come because the, the people, the priests, are far from God. Their heart is far from God. And when our heart is far from God, it leads to comparison. When we begin to not keep our eyes focused on God and we keep our eyes focused on the world, we begin to compare ourselves and we compare ourselves with earthly standards us versus them, and we start to see a non-believer start to have success as the world would define it, and we begin to wonder, is this really worth it? I'm making sacrifices, and I'm not seeing the success, God, that they're seeing, but the problem is, is we're comparing on an earthly standard, not a spiritual or heavenly standard. When we get things right and our heart is not far from God, we will look at spiritual standards, and those are the standards we are to live up to. Comparison with a heart far from God can lead to compromise. And there's a couple definitions of compromise. Compromise really, in some ways, is not a bad thing at all. In fact, um, let's read the definition first. It says, an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. If you're married, you know early on, compromise is important. As a man... In an apartment with another guy, our bachelor pad, right? My bed looked a little different at that point than it does today. I think they should sell fitted sheets and top sheets separately because there's no purpose for a top sheet. If I have a fitted sheet and I have a comforter over me that keeps me warm at night, why do I need something else in between there, right? So for me, as a bachelor, a fitted sheet... Comforter, take my comforter, shake it out real quick, throw it over the bed. That's made. I had one pillow, maybe two to balance things out, but I only needed one. Today, we have a dust ruffle that really just hides the stuff underneath, right? I don't really know what that's for exactly. We have a dust ruffle. We have a fitted sheet. We have a top sheet, a comforter, and seven pillows, five of which get put on the ground at night. Right? Why? 
But this was a compromise I had to make. She looked at my bed, she looked at what she wanted for a bed, and we had to come to a compromise. And our compromise was, you can have a top sheet. I have no problems with that. I will never make the bed. You have a top sheet, I don't make the bed, we're all good, right? You get what you want, I get what I want, everything's good. Because I really don't care if the bed's made or not. Like, Carlos in here was earlier, and I'm going to tell on him, he's, he's kind of the same way. He's like, why make it? You're just going to get right back into it, and it's not going to be used for anything in between. So what's the deal? So we had to compromise early in our marriage, and after 20-plus years of marriage, I now make the bed. <laughs> so compromise can be good, right? But compromise can also be bad. Another definition for compromise, accept standards that are lower than is desirable. What is your standard? If this is our standard, the Bible, anything below that is compromise. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But what does that look like? Statistics would say that in 2020, and maybe it was because it was a COVID year, the numbers seemed to be a little bit higher, that 75% of Americans made New Year's resolutions. Statistics will also tell you that 45% of those New Year's resolutions had something to do with health. Were health-related. It may have been because you've been inside since March and you've just been eating everything in the house since March, and so now you need to drop a couple. Or strength, or get outside and walk. And there's good things about exercise, but 45% of New Year's resolutions deal with health-related items or things. Statistics will also tell you that 8% of people who make a New Year's resolution will keep it. 75% of Americans will do it, but only 8% of those 75% will actually keep their New Year's resolution. Why is that? Somewhere along the line, they've compromised. Somewhere from January 1st to the end of the year, they've compromised. So if you're one of those that made a health-related New Year's resolution, and you come to church, let's say that your health-related resolution was that you were going to cut sugar out of your diet. I've read enough, I know sugar is bad, sodas, whatever. Sugar is not good for your body. And so you're going to cut that out. And you start to feel really good, and then you come to church, and the ladies that are really, really kind out there serving coffee say, hey, would you like a donut? And maybe you turn it down initially, but you can't, right? By February, March, you're like, yeah, I'd like one of those donuts, please. And then you go through the week and you're like, man, that made me feel terrible a little bit, but I'm all right and I really didn't gain any weight. So next week when they ask me if I'm going to have a donut, I'm going to have another donut. And I'm already having donuts at church and I'm on the way and that hot and ready Krispy Kreme sign is on. You know what I'm talking about. You go in there and they give you one of those right off the, the little rollers, hot glaze, it melts in your mouth. I'm going to have one of those, please. You keep driving by there, and next thing you know, you're taking a dozen to work. And then, I mean, you've already had sugar, so why stop there, right? Soda. I mean, my New Year's resolution's already gone. I'm just going back to the way things used to be. I love Dr. Pepper, right? Throw a little of that into my diet. I drive past Andy's, and I cannot stop there. Like, I, I've got to stop maybe there. I, I, and if you're with Pastor Haley, twice a day there. And it just grows and it grows. And the next thing you look back, you're like, man, I had a New Year's resolution, and I compromised on one donut, and now I'm way over here. How'd that happen? That's where we kind of see the priests in Malachi. Maybe it's not a donut. Maybe there's something in your life that 
to satisfy just a single curiosity, you try it once. Like, I know this is in the world and I just want to try it. A substance, maybe it's pornography, whatever that is for you, you try it once, and the next thing you know, you try it again, and you try it again, and it becomes a habit and it's an addiction. And you don't know where that started, but it just started with one little compromise, and the next thing you know, you're way over here. How did I get there? What about spiritual things? Your church schedule? What's competing for your time right here on Sunday mornings? What is it that you're going to compromise one Sunday morning, and the next thing you know, it's another Sunday, and the next thing you know, I haven't been in a month. The next thing you know, well, it's online. We'll just watch it to wherever we're going, right? And you begin to compromise that that going to church and gathering together. The very word church means we gather together. There's a reason that we do that. We're not meant to do this life alone. Come to church. But then does it go beyond that and you begin to look at Scripture and you're like, well, the, you know, you can interpret that maybe a couple different ways. And there are passages in here that are hard to interpret. But there are some that are straightforward. And you begin to take those and you begin to think, well, kind of like Satan to Eve. That's not really what God's saying because that doesn't fit my lifestyle. And you begin to compromise on a passage of Scripture, and the next thing you know, it's another passage. Well, if that one isn't right, or if I can interpret that one that way, then I can interpret this one this way. And the next thing you know, your, your faith no longer looks like it did when it started out. And you begin to compromise over a period of time. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 1, says this, For this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. He says, for this reason, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he makes this great case that Jesus is superior to everything else. And if Jesus is superior to everything else, he's saying, then we must pay attention all the more to the things we've heard that Jesus is superior so that we don't drift away from him. You see, compromise doesn't happen, or, or where we get to in Malachi with the priests in this text doesn't happen overnight. If you're walking into this place and you're just like, this is routine, I really don't want to be here, that didn't happen overnight. It was a slow drift away, as he talks about in Romans here. And eventually, you get to a place that we're going to find the priests in Malachi chapter 1. If you're going through the motions today, you did not get there overnight. A little background into the book of Malachi. Malachi was a prophet. If you're looking in your Bible, if you want to go to the New Testament... And you just take a little left-hand turn back into the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last prophetic word that we had before the New Testament was written. But in Malachi, we, we really don't know when it was written exactly. We have a really good guesstimate of approximately 100 years. But it was probably written sometime in the 5th century B.C. And I think it's important to know what's going on with the Jewish people through history at that point in order to really understand where we come to in Malachi chapter 1. So in 922 BC, Solomon has died and the kingdom divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom and those are the ones we're going to be looking at here in Malachi. The northern kingdom goes off, they worship idols right away. The Lord puts them into captivity with Assyria. Judah holds on a little bit longer. Um, about 586, King Nebuchadnezzar with Babylon, Daniel, right, comes in and destroys Judah, Jerusalem, and takes people captive. 
It actually was three waves, and 586 would have been the last wave where he destroyed and did away with Jerusalem. And then they were in captivity until the Persian Empire came in and conquered Babylon about 539, 538 B.C., and then they allowed people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem in the temple. There was some opposition, and the temple is finally rebuilt in 515 B.C. Why is that important? It's important because when we come to the book of Malachi, there's a temple in place. So it has to occur sometime between 515 B.C. when that was rebuilt and 70 A.D. when the Romans tore it down again. Okay, when we look at the scripture, though, and the other things that surround it, we begin to understand that it was probably during the Persian Empire. Ezra, the book of Ezra, he came back in about 458 B.C. Nehemiah came back about 444 B.C. There are some who think it was written prior to Ezra's return, and then there are some who think it was more during Nehemiah's second return at the end of the book of Nehemiah. If you read chapter 13 of Nehemiah, you'll be like, oh, that's Malachi. Like, there are some things going on. So even if they started to get it right in the early 5th century B.C., they got it wrong again by the time Nehemiah is back. But think about where they've been. They've been in exile. King Nebuchadnezzar was not real big on temple worship and sacrifice to Yahweh, right? Like, they don't have a good example. They, there's even places in Ezra and Nehemiah where they come back and they begin to read the word of God and the people begin to weep because of their sin, They don't even know that they're sinning. They love God, but they don't know what it looks like to really worship him. And so that's where we come to in Malachi. That's the situation they're in, is I'm not giving them a pass or an excuse, but certainly the Levites, the the people who are running the temple, the priests that we see in Malachi, are just not getting it right. And they're kind of going through the motions. Compromise will start small but it can lead to a pattern of sinful behavior and, their behavior, and therefore we have to guard our heart against compromise. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 with me. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies. To you priests who despise my name, Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. Look in verse 6. He says that he is father and master. They know as Israel, he is their heavenly father and he is their master. They are to serve him. There is honor and respect that should come along with that. And God is saying, I don't see it from you. Then they say, well, how have we despised your name? Despises to look down on with disrespect, to regard as negligible, worthless, or distasteful. They're looking down on the very name of God who they are going to the temple to make sacrifices to. Starting to get the picture of where they are? Verse 6, how have we despised your name? They don't even know how. They are so far from God at this point. Their heart is so far from God. They don't even know how they're screwing up. Like how? We're doing the things that we're we're supposed to do. How have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. Again, they say, how have we defiled you? He says, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible. Contemptible is the act of despising, a lack of respect or reverence. It would be like us coming in here to God's house with no reverence or respect for God. The drift from compromise to separation 
The drift from compromise to a heart far from God. The drift from compromise to despise, contemptible, is slow. They don't even know how they got there. Compromise happened a long time ago when we come to the priests in Malachi. And in verse 6, he says, to you priests. And so we think today, well, what does that have to do with us, Sean? That, we're not priests. We're not in the Old Testament system. Give this sermon to, to John and his staff. They're the religious leaders. But 1 Peter 2, 9 says that we are a royal priesthood. Revelation 1, 6 says you are priests. We as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, he considers us priests. When Jesus tore the veil... There was no need for the priest to go in to the Holy of Holies. God opened that up to us through the person of Jesus Christ. You are a priest, and therefore this passage applies to you, to me. We'll read on in verse 8. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? Will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. Verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in the name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. When you go back to verse 8 and it says, bring it to your governor, that's one reason we think it was during the time of, of Persia is because the Persian empire would have put governors out in places and they would have set a table for the governor and the people of that land would bring their best to supply the food, the meat, etc. for that table. And what, what God is saying is, if you brought the sacrifices you're bringing to me as your God to your governor, he would reject them. Why would I not? So it's likely that we're in Persia during that time. And then in verse 9 it says, and now plead for God's favor. They are so far and God is so upset with them, they need to beg for his forgiveness. Verse 10, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. Let that never be said about Hallmark Baptist Church, that the Lord would rather us shut the doors than come in and offer the useless worship that we're offering. That's what it's saying. They're saying that that your sacrifices are so useless, you come with a contempt and you disrespect me. I would rather you shut the temple doors and leave than continue what you're doing. And that's no different for us. We're not making sacrifices, but we come in worshiping. We're not making sacrifices in the way that they made sacrifices, and we'll get to that in a moment. Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15 give standards for sacrifice. So if these priests, if these Levites had been reading the scriptures, the the book of Moses, they would know the standards for the scripture or for the sacrifices from the scriptures, but they don't. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says to the Israelites at that time, he says, I've had enough with your meaningless sacrifices. And in 2 Chronicles 28, King Ahaz actually closes the doors to the temple in Jerusalem in favor of idol worship. 
And God, by saying this to the people in Malachi, is saying, you are no different than the people I was speaking to in Isaiah, your ancestors, where I was, I'd, I'd had enough with their useless worship. And you are no different than King Ahaz, who sought idols instead of me and closed the temple himself. He's basically saying, I wish you would, rather, I wish you would do that than continue to do what you're doing If we bring meaningless worship in this place, we are no different than the priests in Malachi. Religious activity, not rooted in reverence, is repulsive to God. Religious activity, what we do here on a Sunday morning is a religious activity. We come and we worship. Religious activity, not rooted in reverence, is repulsive. Let's read on in verse 12. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food, is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks the Lord? The deceiver is cursed, who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. So how does this play out for us? First, look in verse number 13. He says, look, what a nuisance. The the Israelite priests are coming to the temple and saying, man, this is a nuisance. Do you come with that heart sometimes? Man, why do they have to have church at 915, 1030? Don't they know I sleep in on Sundays? Like, what a nuisance for me to have to get up, drive over there, worship, and then go home. Like, oh, but it's online now. I can sit there and watch, right? No, like, this is a gathering of people. We're to do life together. We're to assemble in this way. There's a purpose for viewing online. But I think God wants us in the house together, in connect groups together, and worshiping together, and growing together. They scorn it. It's a nuisance to them, and they bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. And then in verse 14, he says, The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male. The deceiver, they're trying to deceive God. There is no deceiving God. We may think we are, but we're not. And then it says, The person who has an acceptable male in his flock makes a vow and sacrifices a defective animal. So what does that have to do with us? Romans 12 says that you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We no longer sacrifice animals. Jesus was the sacrifice for us. But when we come to Christ, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him for his purpose, for his glory. So what he's saying here is that they made a vow and they come over to the stable and they look around the stable and they're like, yeah, this is a really nice one, right? Like there's no problems with this one. Man, this is gonna breed more. It's gonna be good to eat. But look at this one. Its eye is like kind of messed up. Maybe, it, maybe it's sort of blind. Let's bring that one to sacrifice because I really don't want that one. And so they bring that one over and they sacrifice it. We make a vow too. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you made a vow to follow him. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love Jesus, follow him. That was the vow you made. And with that vow, you are a living sacrifice. 
And anything less you bring is like them going over to their stable and grabbing the blind, sick, and lame animal and sacrificing it to God. If you're not bringing all of yourself to him. Now there are times in our lives we're not going to do that. We are still sinners. We are still in a sanctification process. And we will not be glorified until we are in heaven with Jesus Christ or he comes back first, right? There are going to be ups and downs in our Christian life, but daily we have to come and say, I am a living sacrifice to you. We need to bring acceptable worship. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, therefore, this decree is for you, priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart, to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. He's cursing them for their actions, for their lack of reverence, for their disrespect. But look at one word in there. It's repeated twice, and it only has two letters. He says, if. If you don't listen, if you don't take it to heart, God's not done with them. They have fallen far from him. Their heart is far away from him. They have drifted to where compromise is not even an issue anymore. They are now fully um, engaged in what we would say is, is repulsive religion activities. But he still says, if you will listen and if you'll return to me and give me your heart, that he'll accept you back. None of us has ever done anything where God can't accept us back. None of us has ever done anything that God won't accept you if you've not received him as your Lord and Savior yet. God loves his people. Verse 3, it says, Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces and the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. Verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. For those of you who read the Bible and you think, the Bible's boring. Like, how do I stay awake and read through it? Read verse 3 again, right? It says, look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces. (laughs) What? What? Like, they're coming to do sacrifice, and when they gut the animal, all the entrails, all the insides, and the dung, the ESV says, the poop, come out. And he says, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to spread it over your face. Like, there's some good stuff in here, right? It's not boring. But what he's saying to them at that moment is that as you come and you offer sacrifices and as you gut an animal and the entrails and the dung and everything else from the inside that is unclean and impure gathered up, he goes, I'm going to cover you in that because you're unclean and you're defiling the temple. And I'm going to take you outside the city with that where it's burned. He's saying, you are unclean and defiling my temple, so I'm going to remove you from the presence of the temple. Remember, this is not just everybody in Judah. He's speaking specifically at the moment to the priests. This is what they were made for. 
This is their life purpose. This is their job. This is everything that they are. And he's saying, I'm going to remove everything from you because you bring me this worthless, useless worship and sacrifice. Verse 8, he says, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but you are showing partiality in your instruction. He said that they've turned from their way. They are sinning. And not just, like we've already talked about, we're going to have ups and downs. We are still going to sin, but they are sinning, meaning it's ongoing. They are wrapped up, caught up in sin. And then he says, you have caused many to stumble. They have a poor witness. When they go out into their community, when they lead those who are supposed to be looking to them for religious leadership, for understanding the scriptures, for sacrifice, for temple worship, he's saying, you're a poor testimony to those people. How are we? What is our testimony to those in our community, in our place of business, in our homes? What is our testimony? What I love about God sometimes is he provides the answer right in the text where he gives the problem. Because their condition of their heart led to inadequate worship. When we're far from God, it leads to inadequate or useless, meaningless worship in here. But God gives us the answer of how to solve that. Look back at Malachi 2, verse 4. How do we guard our hearts against compromise? In his commentary, Robbie Gladia, a modern-day theologian, pastor, gives really three good points from this small passage of Scripture, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2, that I think are keys to guarding our heart against compromise. Verse 4 says, Then you will know that I sent you this decree, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. If you're old enough, you remember back in the 80s, the Be Like Mike Gatorade commercials, late 80s maybe, early 90s. Got to be like Mike, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, But what he's saying here is you don't need to be like Mike, but you need to be like Levi. Listen to these characteristics of Levi and be like Levi. Live godly lives and protect your hearts. Verse number five, he says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. He made a covenant with Levi. The first way that we are to guard our hearts against compromise is through godly commitment. Look at what verse five says. It says that his covenant with Levi that he made with him, it called for reverence, to respect We have to understand who God is, and we have to understand who we are. And we have to to understand who we are in Christ, who we are in God. We must come with reverence. And we must also, it says, he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. Not of his presence, of his name. His very name, he stood in awe. How many of you have come in here, and I know I, there's oftentimes I come in here and this is not the case. I have to remind myself that, that this is the way we're to worship, but come in here and you stand in reverence and awe as we sing praises to his name. My guess is we fail to do that more often, maybe, than we actually do it. Do we stand in reverence and awe? The danger in doing something over and over and over is that it becomes routine and not reverence. When we come here every Sunday 
and we sing songs and we listen to a message and we get in a connect group and then we go home and the next Sunday we come and we do the same thing and the next Sunday we come and do the same thing. The danger in that is that it becomes routine and it doesn't mean anything eventually. We're doing it because that's what we're supposed to do. We're doing that out of routine. We're not doing it any longer out of reverence. So we have to guard our hearts with godly commitment that we will come into this place with reverence and awe and worship and lift up his name. If we're going to guard our hearts against compromise, we have to guard it with godly commitment and we have to guard it with godly character. Look at verse number six. He says, True instruction was in his mouth and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. He gives two things right there at the beginning. He says, Truth instruction, true instruction was in his mouth and nothing wrong was found on his lips. Those sound like the same thing. But I think the first one, when he's talking there, says true instruction was in his mouth. I think he's thinking this. This is truth. In the mouth of Levi, as a religious leader, as a priest, as we are, he spoke the truth. And nothing wrong was found on his lips. So his other speech also was honoring of God. He then says, He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. He walked with me. And then he gives how he did that in peace and integrity. And the fact that he walked with God in peace and integrity, it turned many from their sins. We must walk with God. Luke 9.23 says that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. We are to put our desires and our cares aside and to follow after Jesus. We have to walk with him. We walk with him by reading his word, by understanding his commands, by prayer, by gathering together, holding one another accountable. We must walk with God. To guard our hearts against compromise, we do that through godly commitment. We do that through godly character. And finally, we do that through godly communication. In verse 7, he says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. To guard knowledge. What is the knowledge that he's supposed to guard? It's this. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes the same thing to Timothy. He says, guard the good deposit. This is the good deposit. This is the knowledge. This is the truth. And we have to guard the truth through our speech and our actions, through our communication. It must be godly. People should desire instructions from his mouth. As we guard the knowledge, as we speak truth, people should desire to hear more. We want to hear what that person has to say because he is the messenger of the Lord. You, as followers of Jesus Christ, myself, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as priests, as the New Testament tells us, we are to be messengers of the Lord. We're to take this to other people. Whether it be overseas like Kenya where John is right now with a group or it be in our place of work tomorrow. Maybe it's just getting involved here and sharing the gospel. Well, I don't know it that well. Neither does the two or the three-year-old. Like go teach there first maybe. There are places in this church where you can serve and be a messenger of God. Give confidence maybe for outside of these walls. That we are to be a messenger of God. If we will guard our hearts against compromise, if we have godly commitment, if we have godly character, and if we have godly communication. I think that we are in one of three places of people sitting in here. The big camps would be that either you've not committed at all to Jesus Christ, or you have 
committed. One of my favorite quotes of all time says, when it comes to commitment, there is no middle ground. When it comes to commitment, you're either in or you're out. There is no in-between. So if you're in this camp over here that we're not committed to God, we're not committed to Jesus Christ, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to do that today. I would love to speak with you. There are other pastors in the room, staff, maybe somebody else you know, that can tell you more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think I've come to a point in my life where we talk about the gospel being free. But let me tell you that the gospel in receiving it will cost you nothing monetarily. It's free to come and receive that relationship and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you do, it'll cost you everything. But you will get back way more in return than what you gave up. 